Well, good morning, Sierra Grace. Happy Palm Sunday. My name's Mark Lindblom. I'm one of the elders around here. We're glad you're, you're joining us today. You're probably sitting on your couch in your pajamas, so I figured I would dress up for all of us. Since we're doing everything a little bit differently, I figured I would do this a little differently, too. Instead of a sort of traditional Palm Sunday sermon, I want to talk about something that will anticipate Easter in a different way. I want to talk about the evidence for uh, the resurrection. Um, My hope is that it gives believers a little more confidence in their faith. But mostly I'm hoping to make an appeal to skeptics. Um, I hope I'm not just preaching to the choir. I hope this video finds its its way to someone who's just not sure what they think about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't really expect to convince anyone. Uh, 30 minutes is not that much time, and I don't think I'm smart enough to do this talk justice anyway. But my hope is just that I will inspire you to dig into this subject. You know, maybe this time of quarantine provides an opportunity to uh, really think through the resurrection in a way that you never have before. So let's try this. Let's do a little... Christian apologetics this morning. Um, How do we evaluate the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, with any event in history, you need sources. You need people that were close to the event, who wrote about what they witnessed. Um, The best source, particularly for an event in ancient history, would have four things. And all of these begin with E to make this easy to remember. The best source would be early. Uh, The best source would be an eyewitness. The best source uh, would be an enemy. The best source would have evidence of sincerity. An early source would be someone who's writing not long after the event. Ideally, an uh, early source would also be an eyewitness. Even better would be an early eyewitness who was also an enemy of the cause. That is, someone who's not preconditioned to believe in the event. And lastly, um, evidence of sincerity. In other words, someone whose testimony is believable because of their trustworthiness. So we're going to talk about those four E's as we go through this this morning. And I'm going to spend most of my time actually with that first one. Um, Before we dive in, I just want to say a word about my approach. The way that apologetics is often done in practice is to make a defense for the inspiration of the Bible. Because if someone ex, you know, accepts that the Bible is the inspired word of God, they'll accept the resurrection because the Bible clearly teaches that. I want to take a different approach this morning. Um, you know, Remember, I'm making an appeal to the skeptics. So let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, that the Bible is just like any other ancient literature. Let's suppose the Bible is is not... The Word of God is just an old book. Now, please don't misunderstand. I think the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I think the Bible is a miracle. I become more convinced of that every day that I study it. Um, But what I want to suggest is that the skeptic doesn't have to accept the inspiration of the Bible before they become convinced of the resurrection. So so just for the sake of argument, we're going to apply the same methodology to the Bible 
that uh, historians apply to all other ancient literature. How would we approach the question of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the first thing we would do is ask, what are the earliest sources? And you might expect that we'd start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Gospels are biographies of Jesus. They all include the resurrection. But those aren't actually our earliest sources. So let's do a timeline. I had my daughter read this talk, and she said, Dad, you have to have a visual aid because you're throwing all these dates at people. It's going to be really confusing. Um, so this is my attempt to do that. If you're someone that hated history class in high school and, and hated timelines, this may be a little annoying, but bear with me. I think this will be helpful. So um, Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D., Some would argue for 33, but 30 is the most popular date among historians. Now, when were the Gospels written? Well, we don't know for sure. Um, Historians debate that. And I'm going to give you some dates that sort of represent the consensus of all the scholars. So not just Christian scholars, but scholars who are Christians, non-Christians, skeptics, atheists. They will use roughly these dates. So it's believed that the Gospel of John was written late in the first century, um, sometime around 95 A.D., so 65 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, The Gospels of Matthew and Luke are believed to have been written sometime in the 80s. And then the Gospel of Mark is sort of universally regarded as the earliest Gospel. It's believed to have been written in 70 or thereabouts. Uh, Now, some conservative scholars will give earlier dates for all of those for various reasons. But again, I'm using the sort of the consensus of all the scholars. Um, Now, the earliest gospel then would be 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. When you first hear that, it's a little alarming. 40 years. I mean, can Mark's testimony be accurate after 40 years have elapsed? Well, A little context is helpful. So uh, the evidence we have for almost every event in antiquity um, comes from sources written long after the event, often centuries after the event. So 40 years is actually really good. But as I say, um, this isn't our earliest source. Um, It turns out that all of the letters of Paul were written before 70 A.D., which may sound a little counterintuitive because the events in Paul's letters take place after the events that uh, the Gospels are narrating. But the Gospels weren't actually written down until after Paul's letters. I hope that makes sense. Now, there are 13 letters in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul. Some of these are disputed by critical scholars. In other words, some scholars think that some of the letters um, that are attributed to Paul in the Bible were actually written later by people writing in the name of Paul. Now, that's not my position. That's not the position of this church. But again, I'm making an appeal to the skeptic. And so um, we're going to treat the Bible like any secular historian would. All of the scholars except seven of Paul's letters as authentic. 
even scholars like Bart Ehrman, who's a guy that's made a career out of writing books that are critical of Christianity, even Bart would accept these seven letters as authentic Pauline letters. Now, which letters are they? I'm glad you asked. They are 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, Philemon, and Philippians. This morning, I want to focus on two short passages from two of those letters, one in 1 Corinthians, one in Galatians. Both of these passages are found in the letters considered authentic by all the scholars. Okay, so let's start with 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, um, just the nature of how we're doing this on video, you're not going to have the screen with the, with the scriptures in front of you. Um, so I would encourage you, if you don't already have your Bible on your lap, to just press pause and uh, go get your Bible. You know, you could get a sandwich while you're at it. You could take a nap. I mean, that's the beauty of this format. But I think it'll be helpful to have your Bible so that you can follow along with me. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first point that I want, the first thing I want to point out about this is that the event Paul is going to write about is the gospel, the good news, by which you are saved, he says. So, so this is not just an event, an event of mild historical significance. This is the event of all events. If it's true, it changes everything. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's a pretty incredible claim, isn't it? Paul names three individuals and then three groups who saw the risen Jesus. Now, remember, no scholar doubts that Paul wrote these words. And the consensus is that Paul wrote this letter around 55 A.D. So now we've closed the gap from the time of this source to the crucifixion to 25 years. And we can actually close that gap even farther. But first, I want you to notice that how, how Paul makes this argument. Paul's argument for the validity of the resurrection is based on the resurrection appearances. Um, all four Gospels um, allege that Jesus was placed in a tomb after his crucifixion and, and that he was, the tomb was found empty three days later. Uh, oftentimes in apologetics for the resurrection, the empty tomb is really emphasized. And that's an important piece of evidence in the case for the resurrection. But it's not the most important piece. So in the, in the Gospel of John, for example, uh, we're told that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on Easter Sunday. She found the tomb empty. And her first thought was not that Jesus had risen from the dead. In John 20, verse 13, we read, 
Uh, this is Mary speaking. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She sees the empty tomb, and she thinks someone has taken Jesus, taken his body. It's not until she meets the resurrected Jesus that she believes. And that was the same for all of the disciples, except maybe John, okay? Even Paul. Now, Paul, um, no doubt, had heard stories of an empty tomb, but Paul is a, a highly educated, hard-headed, rational guy. He's not going to believe because of some story of an empty tomb. Paul only believes as he tells us when he meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. I point that out because skeptics who want to disprove the resurrection often try and poke holes in the resurrection stories, in, in, the, in the empty tomb stories, I mean. And one of the popular arguments is that, well, the victims of crucifixion uh, weren't normally placed in tombs. They were normally just buried in mass graves, which is true. Uh, you know, the victims of crucifixion were considered criminals, after all. You don't put a criminal in a fancy tomb. Um, there's a, well, there's actually good reason to reject that argument with respect to Jesus. But just for the sake of the argument, um, even if that were true, it doesn't change the force of the evidence when Jesus shows up alive three days later. See, the earliest Christians didn't believe because of an empty tomb. They believed because they saw Jesus alive again. But can they be trusted? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. I mentioned that 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, but it gets better than that. Note that Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance. So the message he's about to give in this letter is a message he's already given to the Corinthian church in person. Well, when was that? Paul's first trip to the city of Corinth is actually one of the most well-attested dates in the New Testament. Um, Acts chapter 18 relates what happened to Paul on that trip. And uh, it says this in Acts 18.12. <laughs> Whoops. We're losing our visual aid here. Bear with me just a sec. This is some high-tech stuff, you guys. All right, we're retaped. Acts 18.12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. See, the Bible... Uh, doesn't give us dates the way that a modern history book would. But there are these historical markers that are sort of sprinkled through the Bible. The Bible will tell us so-and-so was the ruler at such-and-such such a time, or during the census this happened, or during this severe famine that happened. Um, and what that allows historians to do is to piece together a timeline. So that business about Gallio being proconsul when Paul is in Corinth, is significant. Um, we know that proconsuls only served for one year. Um, we actually have an inscription that archaeologists found in the city of Delphi um, that is part of a letter the emperor of Rome sent to Gallio, and it's dated. Um, and so we know that Paul was in Corinth in 51 AD. Okay, so now 
we've actually narrowed the gap from uh, the time of this source to uh, the crucifixion to 21 years. But it even gets better than that. Notice that Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, Paul's not just sharing his own personal testimony about the risen Jesus, but he's sharing information that he received from others. Well, when did that take place? If we go to Galatians, uh, we get Paul's account of this meeting. And remember, Galatians is another one of the letters that all of the scholars accept as authentic. It's possibly the earliest Pauline letter in the Bible. So go to Galatians 1. We'll start in verse 13. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing... I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which again is Paul's name for uh, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the uh, apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul is confronted by the risen Jesus on his trip to Damascus. And um, he goes off to Arabia for three years. We're not, he doesn't tell us why, but probably just to come to terms with, um, you know, what has happened to him. This, this, this thing he witnessed that has changed his life. And then he goes up to Jerusalem and spends 15 days with um, Peter and James. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's a pretty incredible claim, isn't it? Paul names three individuals and three groups who uh, witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Now remember, no scholar in the field doubts that Paul wrote these words. And the consensus is that Paul wrote this letter around 55 AD. Okay, so now we've closed the gap um, from the time of this source to the time of the resurrection to 25 years. And we can close that gap even farther. But first, notice that Paul's argument for the validity of the resurrection is based on the appearances of the risen Jesus. He names three individuals, Cephas, which is Paul's name for Peter. Cephas means rock in in Aramaic, and uh, Peter means rock in Greek. So Cephas is Peter. James is James, the brother of Jesus. There's lots of James in the Bible, but this is the brother of Jesus. And then uh, Paul refers to himself 
He also names three groups, the 12 disciples, a larger group of apostles, and then a still larger group of over 500 people. Oftentimes in apologetics for the resurrection, the empty tomb of Jesus is emphasized. So the Gospels allege that Jesus was buried in a tomb and that that tomb was found empty three days later. Well, that's an important piece of evidence in the case for the resurrection, but it's actually not the most important piece. Um, In John's Gospel, for example, we're told that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on Easter Sunday and discovered that the tomb was empty, but her first thought was not that Jesus had risen from the dead. She says this in John 20, 13, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she sees the empty tomb, and she thinks someone has taken the body. It's only after she meets the resurrected Jesus that she believes. And actually, the same is true for all the disciples, um, with the exception of John, it would seem. Um, The same is true for Paul. Paul, no doubt, had heard stories of an empty tomb, but Paul is a highly educated, um, you know, hard-headed, rational guy. He's not going to believe in some story about an empty tomb um, unless there's powerful evidence. And so he only believes, as he tells us, when he sees the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. I point that out because one of the arguments that uh, critics, uh, you know, that are trying to disprove the resurrection will will point to is they you know they will try and poke holes in the stories of the empty tomb. One popular argument is that the victims of crucifixion were not normally buried in tombs; they were normally just buried in mass graves, uh, which is true because um, crucifixion victims were considered criminals. You don't bury a criminal in a fancy tomb. Well, there's actually a good reason to reject that argument in the case of Jesus. But just for the sake of the argument, even if that were true, it wouldn't change the force of the evidence when Jesus shows up alive three days later. See, the earliest Christians didn't believe because of an empty tomb. They believed, as they tell us, because they saw Jesus alive again. But can they be trusted? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians again. I mentioned that 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, but it gets better than that. Notice that Paul writes, I delivered to you of first importance. So the message he's about to give in this letter is one he's already delivered in person to the Corinthian church. Well, when did that take place? Well, Paul's first trip to the city of Corinth is actually one of the most well-attested dates in the New Testament. Acts chapter 18 relates what happened on Paul's trip to Corinth, and it says this in Acts 18.12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. See, the Bible doesn't give us uh, dates the way a modern history book would. But there are these historical markers that are just sprinkled throughout the Bible. The Bible will say something like, so-and-so was uh, the ruler at this time, or uh, during the census this happened, or during this famine that happened. And those historical markers allow historians to piece together a timeline. So um, 
when when uh, the author of Acts mentions that Gallio was proconsul at this time, we know that proconsuls only served for uh, one year, and we have an inscription that archaeologists have uncovered. It's actually a letter that the emperor of Rome sent to Gallio while he was proconsul, and it's dated. So we know that Gallio was proconsul, and therefore Paul was in Corinth in 51 AD. So now we've narrowed that gap from the source to uh, Jesus' crucifixion to 21 years. Uh, But it even gets better than that. Notice that Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, Paul's not just sharing his own personal testimony of seeing the risen Jesus. He's sharing information that he received from others. Well, when did that take place? Well, if we go back to Galatians, um, we find Paul's account of this meeting. Well, remember, Galatians is one of the letters that all of the scholars accept as authentic. It's possibly the earliest Pauline letter in the Bible. So turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which, again, is Paul's name for Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother." So Paul is confronted by the risen Jesus on his trip to Damascus, and then we're told he goes off to Arabia for three years. We're not told why, um, presumably to sort of try and make sense of what he's seen and what this means for his life. And after those three years, then he goes up to Jerusalem and spends 15 days with Peter and James. Now, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall for those conversations? I mean, these three guys, these are the three guys that wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. These are the same three guys that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 15 as witnesses of the risen Jesus. They get together for a couple weeks. When did this happen? Um, It happens three years, we're told, after Paul's conversion. Well, Paul's conversion is dated between 32 and 36 A.D. And again, that's the consensus of all the scholars Christian, non-Christian. Um, so, so this meeting, that, therefore, takes place between 35 and 39 A.D. So the information that Paul is sharing with the Corinthian church was information he had received within five to nine years of the date of the crucifixion. We'll say 37, just to pick right in the middle. You guys, we have a source for the resurrection of Jesus around seven years from the event. For ancient history, that's just a heartbeat. But it it actually gets even better than that. I feel like I keep saying that. I should have just a sign that I lift up. It gets even better than that. You may notice as you read 1 Corinthians 15 
that the part about the resurrection appearances uh, sounds a little different than the main body of the letter. For example, in verse 3, Paul's writing that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. What Bible scholars point out is that embedded within the letters of Paul are what they call creedal statements. And this is an example here. So creedal statements are not words that Paul wrote himself, but they're words that he's borrowing from the early church. And Paul will often precede these creedal statements by saying something like, it's a trustworthy statement, da-da-da-da-da, or, uh, you know, it's our common confession, da-da-da-da-da. Or as he says here, this is what I received. Um, You know, if we were experts in the Greek language, this would be more obvious um, because we'd see that Paul's writing style abruptly changes when he inserts these creedal statements. People that are experts in the language say that they have a certain cadence to them. You know, they're they're pithy and memorable. They're like the later creeds in that way. They're designed to encapsulate the Christian faith and, and make it memorable. And some modern translations of the Bible actually will separate these out in, in like a verse format so, you, so the casual reader can pick up on it. Well, so what? Why am I bothering you with all this information? Well, this is what's significant about this. Historians uh, tell us that these creedal statements take a good while to develop. You know, the Apostles' Creed, for example, which is sort of the first complete and widely used Christian creed, is dated uh, usually to late in the second century. You know, it takes a good while for... um, believers to sort of formulate the essence of their new faith. But here's the thing. This creedal statement in 1 Corinthians 15 comes very, very early. Paul writes these words in 55 AD. He had already shared this with the Corinthian church in 51. He receives this information uh, from Peter and James in around 37, which only confirms his own personal experience of the risen Jesus from around 34. By the time Paul meets with these guys, the early church has already believed in the resurrected Jesus long enough to sort of package their faith in the form of this creedal statement. The best explanation for that is that belief in the resurrection goes all the way back to that first Easter Sunday. Now, maybe that's just obvious to you, but, you know, to the uninformed skeptic, you often will hear, well, you know, belief in the resurrection of Jesus was not something anyone believed in the early years after his death. You know, um, they were just, for many years, they were trying to come to terms with the tragedy of his death, and so um, they sort of invented the resurrection stories. But the evidence we have runs in exactly the opposite direction. So our first criterion for a good source was an early source, and you could hardly do better than this. Okay, our second criterion for a good source was an eyewitness. So our first criterion for a good source was an early source, and you could hardly do better than this. Our second criterion for a good source 
was an eyewitness. Paul's claim is not that these three individuals and these three groups have heard from someone else that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's claim is that he saw they saw him with their own eyes. And Paul's most shocking claim is that a group of over 500 people saw the risen Jesus, um, most of whom remain until now, he writes, but some have fallen asleep. Now, why does Paul mention that? Well, clearly that serves an apologetic function. Um, if you lived in Corinth and you were skeptical about the resurrection, uh, there were people who around who claimed to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul's saying, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to one of these people and decide for yourself. Um, you know, one aspect of Paul's list that's interesting is who he doesn't include. So Paul doesn't include any women. All four Gospels tell us that the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus were women. Um, now, this in itself is powerful evidence for the truth of the gospel because women in that culture uh, were not considered reliable witnesses. Their testimony wasn't accepted in court. So the best explanation for why the gospels would tell us they're the first witnesses is simply that that's what actually happened. You wouldn't invent that part of the story. Um now, Paul doesn't include the women, I suppose, because he's aware of the prejudice. He's writing to Corinth, which is uh, a Roman colony. He knows that that a woman's testimony won't be considered credible, so he leaves them out. Now, Paul doesn't share that prejudice. In fact, Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians that there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But he probably leaves them out here because he doesn't want to give the Corinthians any reason to reject his testimony. Okay, fine, a skeptic might say. So there are a bunch of people running around claiming to be eyewitnesses. But why should we trust them? Well, I think the modern uh, skeptic can be guilty of a prejudice of their own, like a sort of prejudice against ancient peoples. The thinking can be, you know, we live in the age of science and reason, so we know that uh, resurrections don't happen. Um, you know, the people that lived in those times, they were liable to believe all sorts of silly things. They believed that epilepsy was caused by demon possession, for example. I mean, they were ignorant of so many things. Well, it's true that we know a lot more about many things, but one thing they understood perfectly well was death. I mean, you don't have to be a modern thinker to know that dead people don't come alive again. And I think it's fair to say that someone who witnessed a resurrection 2,000 years ago would be just as shocked as we would be today. N.T. Wright, a Bible scholar, puts it this way. He says, the fact that dead people do not ordinarily, ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief, not an objection to it. The early Christians insisted that what had happened to Jesus was precisely something new, was indeed the start of a whole new mode of existence, a new creation. In other words, the, re the resurrection of Jesus, by definition, was an unprecedented event. And you can't logically object to it by saying, well, I don't believe that because there's no precedent for it. Well, of course not. That's the whole point. These people were claiming they saw something that no one else has ever seen. 
Well, okay, the skeptic responds. So, so people were claiming they saw the resurrected Jesus. They were making that claim right after the alleged event. But that doesn't mean they're telling the truth. I mean, it could be some kind of conspiracy. Um, you know, maybe they're just delusional. Maybe they saw what they wanted to see. Well, this leads us to our third criterion for a good source, which was an enemy. Note that two of the three individuals that Paul lists were actually opposed to the Jesus movement um, before witnessing the resurrection. Paul was famously very opposed, as he had written to the Galatians in, in 113. He said, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. So Paul was not preconditioned to believe in the resurrection, quite the opposite. Paul was trying to stamp out what he saw as heresy. And I think you have to admit that Paul was not a guy you would expect to believe something without powerful evidence. Uh, he, was, he was highly educated. He had stuttered, studied under Gamaliel, a famous rabbi of the time. He was intelligent, as you can see in his letters. Um, according to Philippians, which is another of the letters that all the scholars accept, according to Philippians, Paul was a Pharisee, which was a group of Jews that Jesus was very critical of. And so it was in Paul's interest to oppose Jesus. It was in Paul's interest to try and destroy this pernicious rumor that Jesus had come back alive again. And it's on his way to Damascus to do just that, that he meets the resurrected Jesus. And it changes his life. James, on the other hand, James, the brother of Jesus, was not violently opposed to uh, Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. He just thought it was nonsense. John's Gospel tells us in John 7, 5, not even his brothers were believing in him, talking about Jesus. Think about that. Not even his brothers. Mark's Gospel gives us this revealing little story. Uh, when large crowds are beginning to uh, gather around Jesus, it says in Mark three twenty one, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So James thought his brother might be crazy. Here's what's fascinating about this. James becomes the leader of the home church in Jerusalem. James is a really important figure in early Christianity. And yet, the Gospels have little to say about James, and what they do say is negative. Actually, Peter, the other guy that Paul lists as a witness, also looks bad, bad in a lot of the Gospel stories. So, why would these embarrassing stories of the leaders of the early church be included in the Gospels unless they're true? You know, the way that critical scholars tend to think about the disciples is that they were so impressed with the teachings of Jesus that after the crushing disappointment of Jesus' execution, they invented the resurrection stories to keep Jesus' teachings alive. But the experience of Paul and the experience of James is exactly the opposite. They clearly were not impressed with the teaching of Jesus during his life. Um, But something caused these men who rejected Jesus during his life to become committed followers after his death. What accounts for that? Well, according to our sources, it was 
a resurrection appearance of Jesus. So our sources are early. They're from eyewitnesses. Two of them were enemies. And lastly, evidence for sincerity. So one evidence for sincerity is just internal to the letters themselves. If you read the letters of Paul and Peter and James in the New Testament, they don't strike you as the writings of dishonest men. You know, as you read those letters, the personalities that confront you uh, are not, you know, those of a religious crank or uh, a cult leader or a liar, but of a brilliant, rational mind. See, to, to reject the resurrection of Jesus you have to conclude that someone like Paul was mistaken about the most important event in his life. Well, maybe that sounds too subjective. Probably the greatest uh, evidence of sincerity that we can even imagine would be this. Are you willing to die for your testimony? If Peter, James, and Paul were lying about seeing the resurrected Jesus, would they be willing to suffer and die for that lie? We have first century sources for the martyrdom of all three of these men. Josephus tells us about the martyrdom of James. Josephus was a Jewish uh, historian in the first century. He's not a Christian. He had no sympathy for the Christian cause, but he writes about how James was killed for his faith. Clement of Rome, another first century source, tells us about the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. I don't think there's greater evidence for sincerity than that. They died for their testimony. Now, I I have heard skeptics say, yeah, well, lots of people die for their faith. Even today, it doesn't mean that they're right. There's a huge difference, though, in that these guys were in a position to positively know if their testimony was accurate. Right. I mean, their testimony was not based on what someone else saw, but on their own personal experience. And they suffered and they died for that testimony. So we have great sources for the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just close with this. Let me just transition for a moment from history to theology. Um The heart of the Christian message is the gospel, the good news. The heart of the Christian message is not philosophy or a particular teaching. It's news. It's something that happened. It's an event. Sometimes people imagine that it wouldn't actually matter that much if Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead because, you know, we still have his teaching Even if Jesus didn't survive death, his message of love did survive. And that's what matters. You know, sometimes you hear something like maybe the resurrection was just a metaphor for how good overcomes evil. That sort of thing. Well, let me share one more verse with you. It's it's from that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 17, Paul writes this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul saw with perfect clarity that everything 
rested on the truth or falsehood of the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel for Paul was not just a beautiful idea. It was a flesh and blood reality. I love this poem that John Updike, John Updike wrote um, called Seven Stanzas at Easter. Uh, Updike is not a theologian. He's a novelist, but I think he really captures the significance of the resurrection in this poem. Let's share just one stanza with you. He writes, Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. You see that the stakes couldn't be higher. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is either the greatest thing that's ever happened or it's the greatest fraud that's ever been perpetrated. And we have to make a decision. And that decision goes beyond our intellect and reaches our will. You might recognize, gee, there's stronger evidence for the resurrection than I thought. You might be willing to, to go as far as saying, well, you know, the resurrection very likely happened. But that's not enough. We need to walk through the door. Saving faith is committing our lives to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And if you haven't already, I pray that you'll walk through that door into life with the risen Jesus. I pray that you'll experience the power of the resurrection and the joy and forgiveness that comes from Christ's presence in your life. And then we can gather again next Sunday and celebrate Easter fully. We can gather next Sunday and worship our Lord and Savior, the risen one, Jesus Christ. Well, God bless you and have a great week.